and opinions expressed by callers, guests, and hosts do not necessarily reflect those of the Black Talk Radio Network and Black Talk Media Project. Black Talk Radio is new black media for the new millennium. Conversation Reparations, Conversation Reparations. This is our next installment coming from Encobra, the National Coalition of Blacks for Reparations in America. We do this twice a month on first and third Mondays. And you can reach Encobra on our website at encobraonline.org. That's N-C-O-B-R-A, encobraonline.org. You can reach Brother Jamoke and myself directly at reparationsj at gmail.com. That's reparationsj at gmail.com. And my direct number is 678-437-7882. Very excited to bring you this program today. Today we're going to focus on the university studying slavery symposium that was just held fall 2019 in Cincinnati, Ohio. I had the honor of being a part of that symposium, uh, pouring the libation for the opening ceremony, as well as being on two panels, uh, really a panel, I guess we call it a workshop. We'll get into that a little bit later. And and we have the, on as a part of our guest today, we will have uh, Dr. Kyra Shahid, who is the who was the lead organizer for that event, although she had a very dynamic team of people working with her, uh, professor at Xavier University, as well as we also have a guest, Sister uh, Rochelle Prater, who is a part of the GU-272. And if you're not familiar with the GU-272, uh, she's a descendant of the GU-272. We're gonna, you'll find out more about that and what they are doing um, in along the conversation of moving um complete repair and reparations forward. So uh, let's just go ahead and get into it. Uh, you're on the phone, Dr. Kyra. You're on the show. Can you hear me? 
Absolutely. Matt, I'm here. Good evening. Good evening. Uh, good evening. Good evening. Great, 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 great. Glad to have you. Uh, just wanted to uh, just start out by saying again, um, hats off to you because you organized a very well-organized symposium. As I, as I said to you before, it was very well, I think, thought out and um, different components of it. And I felt well taken care of. A lot of times, sometimes when you're at a conference or a symposium, you just uh, try to feel your way around and you're on a strange college campus and things don't always go smoothly. But um, your co you, you took very good care of us and the conference, I thought, um, covered um, some good ground and, and, and was very well planned. So just, again, thanks to you and your uh, staff and supporters and volunteers and, and sponsors that helped to um, make it a very dynamic conference. So just oh, was curious you. to get. You're welcome. You're welcome. So just was curious as to why uh, Xavier hosted it. And actually, I guess we should give some background about what the University Studying Slavery is. And I'm not sure how much uh, about it that you know. I know. Uh, I'll share what I know, and I guess you can add to that. Is that okay. um, we, you know, there are what I call some of the high-profile colleges, for example, uh, Harvard and Yale and, and Princeton and Brown, some of those colleges that have been um, looking into their slavery past. But there's also another group of colleges who maybe not as high-profile as those colleges that have also started looking into their slavery past. And some years ago, they decided to um, come together and form this consortium called University Studying Slavery and began having conferences um, twice a year in the fall and in the spring. Um, I've attended the last four uh, of those uh, symposiums that they've been holding, one in uh, Virginia, Holland College, University of Virginia, uh, Tougaloo, uh, William and Mary was the last one, and then the last one at uh, Xavier University and the University of Cincinnati, the one we're going to talk about a little bit more. And so what those uh, colleges have been doing is having the students along with the faculty uh, and, and, and alumni as well in some cases um, actually doing archaeological research or going into the documents, uh, historical archives and things like that and, and really looking at their, um, their connection to slavery. And then, and then, and then there's also been conversations subsequent to that in terms of renaming buildings or acknowledging uh, cemeteries that may have had um, people of African descent, you know, where uh, that are on campus or near campus, and um, and so different things have been done, and so that's what I know about it. You want to add some more? Yes, I mean, I think that's a good foundation. I would add that the consortium was started by the University of Virginia which is the mm -hmm. hosting institution. Um, Charlottesville. Uh-huh, and they, they started out really wanting to connect with other universities in Virginia um, that held a similar past. But Georgetown, which is another Jesuit institution like Xavier, was actually one of the first institutions outside of the state of Virginia to express that they want to join. Uh, and immediately... From there, it has grown. And so in terms of Jesuit institutions, Xavier is now the, pardon me, the third institution to join. Um, uh, and we follow uh, Georgetown and St. Louis University uh, in St. Louis, Missouri. But there are, I think, uh, just a little under 60 universities that are now a part of USF. 
and they expand the South to Midwest. Um, some of them are private. Some of them are HBCUs. You know, uh, it really runs the gamut of universities. But, yeah. Okay. Very good. Yeah. I think the last count I heard was 40. I didn't know it was up to 60. Wow. So why did you decide, um, or I don't know if you decided, but why were you, why did you decide that you wanted to uh, host the next, the, the symposium that we just had in, um, which was uh, October the 9th through the 12th in Cincinnati? Or why did your well, institution want to host it? So the first USS symposium that I attended was at Tougaloo. Um, and this was right in the midst of Xavier really finding out what its historical connections to slavery are. Um, after Georgetown released a lot of information in 2017 regarding their history, our current president, uh, Father Michael Graham, asked a question uh, to some faculty members at Xavier inquiring whether or not um, Xavier had a similar past. So, I mean, he recognized, of course, you know, Xavier is in a northern state, however, given the years that we were founded um, and just knowing what we know um, about any organizations, universities, or otherwise that were founded during that time period, he just wondered what the story would be behind our historical connections to slavery. And so when I came to Tougaloo um, and witnessed some of the conversations that were happening uh, and the types of folks who were uh, participating in the symposium, I thought it would be a natural next step for Xavier to create a space for us to have this conversation. Um, I think some of the universities in the South are having particular conversations as they are needed, um, but there aren't as many uh, universities in the North who are really talking about the benefits that they have received and continue to receive from uh, the institution of slavery. And so uh, a colleague of mine, uh, Dr. Holly McGee at the University of Cincinnati, was also in attendance at Tougaloo. And we were actually in the hallway uh, grabbing coffee uh, when we met and began to sort of talk about our hopes for what we might do in Cincinnati. Uh, and through that conversation, you know, we agreed that we would go back and propose to our institutions for us to co-host the symposium. And when I brought this idea to uh, Father Graham and to the rest of the leadership at Xavier, um, they were absolutely 100% on board from the very beginning. Um, because we know uh, and have known for quite some time that there's a particular conversation that we need to have in Cincinnati. Cincinnati has a particular past um, with, uh, as it pertains to, uh, you know, the institution of slavery, our connections to Kentucky, things that have been done that have yet to be reconciled or even having the story fully told. Uh, and so the symposium was an opportunity for us to launch that conversation, not just on our respective campuses, Xavier and University of Cincinnati, but in the community of Cincinnati um, collectively and holistically, you know, so we can really think about what does it mean for us to have a conversation about reparations and healing in Cincinnati in 2019. Yes, awesome. And actually, it was in Tougaloo where we first met. Absolutely, and, yeah, uh, it was. Yeah, and I and um uh, and also, I just wanted to mention this. You know, you talked about your university being um, all in when you brought it to them. I, I do remember um, when I got to Cincinnati uh, on the first evening of the reception meeting, um, Father Graham, and I could 
feel his sincerity around this issue. You know, sometimes when we are around European Americans and you can you can kind of tell when, you know, they are doing something maybe, I don't want to say it's like maybe like politically correct or they think that they right. should be doing versus someone who's really sincere. And um, I really um, felt his, his sincerity. And even later on throughout the um, symposium and other times when he spoke, you know, getting to see him more and more um, talk about this issue, I could I could really sense his sincerity around it. And, and that's, that's a good thing. Yeah, it's made all the difference. Um, there were several um, individuals who were in leadership on other campuses and even on Xavier's campus um, who remarked uh, just how, quote, unquote, fortunate we are to have leadership at our institution who is really leading the charge for this. You know, this, Xavier's uh, work on its historical connections to slavery began with the question that was asked by the president. Um, which is a different model. You know, there weren't sure. students who were protesting, you know, like other institutions. There weren't faculty sure. members or staff who were demanding sure. that we have to have this conversation. You know, this conversation really started in the president's office and has trickled down and trickled out. Um, and he's been very clear from the very beginning that he wanted this to be more than a moment. It's about more than a name change. Um, you know, and so having his full support, I think, has allowed us to host this symposium in a way where we could, you know, really couch it as being more than an academic conference um, because we had that support institutionally, right, where we didn't have to convince the university that it was important. They were already on board, so we could really focus on developing uh, and cultivating our relationship with the community. Very good. You know, I, um, again, was thinking back to to Tougaloo and realize, you know, from your presentation, I could tell that you were a great classroom instructor just from the some of the ideas that you shared in terms of how you taught um, around the issues of racism and things like that to get people, to get the young people to really understand it and, and not just, you know, intellectualize it or read about it and some of the creative things that you did. But I was uh, not really realizing just how uh, powerful a administrator and creative thinker that you were in, in beyond the classroom and so I wanted to just acknowledge that and, and and using that to segue in terms of some of the things that you all are doing at Xavier to address the you know slavery past and I guess you maybe want to start by unpacking what did you all di- discover and then you know what are some of the things that you all are doing to make amends redress reparations. Well, thank you. I, I appreciate the compliments and the affirmation. Um, as you know, this work um, can be complicated. Uh, and so finding ways to be authentic in it is, you know, to me, my approach to not just surviving, but thriving. So in a nutshell, uh, uh, one of Xavier's founders, uh, Bishop Edward Fenwick, who's actually one of the first uh, bishops here in Cincinnati out of the Catholic Church, um, was indeed a slaveholder. Um, he inherited slave, enslaved Africans and land from his family in Maryland um, and sold some of the individuals that he owned there in order to buy property in Kentucky, where he also owned slaves again. Um, and then he used the money from an additional uh, sale of enslaved Africans that he held in Kentucky to buy the land uh 
trying to help fund what would become Xavier University and St. Xavier High School here in Cincinnati, Ohio. Uh, and in addition to that, you know, what we have also learned, um, and well, before I share that, I should share that um, what also is significant about Bishop Edward Fenwick is that our newest and largest residence hall had been named in his honor, uh, which was in the early 2000s. Uh, and we became aware of this history with Bishop Edward Fenwick in 2017. And so since then, we've been in uh, community conversations about uh, whether or not to change the name on the building, what a change would look like, and what, you know, what does that mean in terms of how we're moving forward. Um, but another piece of Xavier's historical connection to slavery um, is that uh, during those early years, one of the sustainability strategies and recruitment strategies uh, that they used in the beginning was to really uh, recruit uh, the sons of slaveholders in the South, particularly from Louisiana, uh, to mm -hmm. attend Xavier University. And so the majority of the early students were the sons of slaveholders in the South, uh, which means that majority of the funds that supported the institution um, those tuition dollars all came from uh, slaveholding families, uh, again, majority being in Louisiana, uh, but definitely from from the South. And so we've been having a particular conversation about what that means. Um, and we've also begun, you know, looking into not just what are Xavier's historical connections to slavery, but what has been Xavier's historical footprint as it pertains to race and racism? We recognize that mm -hmm. slavery was followed by, you know, a hundred plus years of segregation, right? Which was then followed by a number of black codes in Cincinnati um, and a lot of different policies that disenfranchised the black community. And so how has the university participated in that? Um, what are the benefits? You know, what is the debt? Uh, and how do we reconcile what practices do we have currently that are, you know, the children and stepchildren of such behaviors and lifestyles uh, and beliefs and how are we, you know, we're ready to respond and do something different. Uh, and so to sort of uh, create a collective initiative that allows us to look at this work holistically, um, we've implemented what is called the stained glass initiative. Uh, and stained glass, is, the, the term comes from a, a book chapter that I wrote a few years back. Um, and I use the metaphor of stained glass to, to capture um, the historical and sacred space that stained glass typically holds. You usually see it either in a historical building or in a church. Um, and it's made from a lot of different broken pieces of a lot of different shapes, sizes, and colors. Um, and those pieces are brought together to tell a particular story and to capture a piece of history. But as that glass is put into place um, and the light shines through it, it shines a completely different uh, uh, picture on, on the ground. And so we use stained glass as a metaphor for how it is we want to be able to use what we have learned from our history to be able to bring all of these different pieces together to capture history, but to do it to create something new, something sacred, something holistic, you know, something that mirrors what one might think of when you think of a mosaic. And so this initiative includes a lot of different pieces. Um, one of the things that Father Graham shared during the symposium was that our numbers in terms of diversity 
are very low. Uh, of course, you know, Xavier is a private Jesuit Catholic institution uh, with the majority of staff and faculty being European, um, over 80%. Uh, and so uh, part of the Stained Glass Initiative is about intentional hires. Um, and we've got the first one happening right now. The application closes November 15th. Uh, and we're hiring a associate professor um, for uh, Black Studies. We've launched uh, a uh, racial healing experience in Senegal, West Africa. Uh, the university pays for 12 students. All expenses paid, students just have to cover the cost of their passport. Um, but we take students to a two-and-a-half-week-long uh, racial healing experience in Senegal, West Africa, where we walk them through uh, Gore Island and a lot of other historical uh, places in West Africa to help them build a connection. Um, because we know a part, of, a part of the debt is, you know, the history, the story, the, the break in our narrative. Uh, the break in our, you know, generational connections. And so we take students on that experience, uh, which also includes uh, a whole plethora of leadership development training uh, and restorative yoga and other practices to help young folks deal with and come to terms with how they reconcile the way in which racism plays physical, spiritual, and intellectual well-being. Uh, and so those are two initiatives, the 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 racial healing experience trip, uh, as well as the new hires. Um, in addition to those two things, of course, we've got the renaming initiative uh, for Bishop Fenwick Place and figuring out where we go forward with that. Um, we've also hired an artist in residence who was at the symposium, um, who is Miss Angela Franklin, who is a renowned uh, textile artist who has done work all over the globe. Um, she is with us for 10 months, and she is creating a quilt series of four quilts uh, that will hang in the president's boardroom uh, in the front of campus. And these quilts tell the narrative or pieces of the narrative about Davis historical connections um, with the implication or the intention to really celebrate um, the work life and legacy of those who were enslaved. And so it's not necessarily telling the story of Bishop Fenwick and giving him more place, but it's telling the story of those voices and those hands and those individuals who have been silenced. And so that's another major part of the initiative. Um, in addition to that, we've launched a number of uh, grants uh, that uh, different folks around the institution can apply for, students, faculty, staff included. They're called Mosaic Grants. Um, and it's an opportunity for folks to get dollars. I believe the cap is $5,000 at one time. Uh, to do different initiatives, research projects, programs, bring in speakers, et cetera, um, who are helping to move, you know, this work forward. And there are a number of other things that are still yet to come and that are underway. Um, I think one of the things that's important about the approach that we've taken at Xavier um, is that we are very clear that this work is organic. Um, there are some things that we figured out from the very beginning needs to happen, uh, but as the research has been ongoing, and as we, you know, engage in more conversations with the community, uh, you know, as the symposium has wrapped up, for example, we've learned a lot more about what people want to see. And so we're shifting some of what we have projected to do in order to be responsive to the needs of the community. Um, and one way uh, that we're doing that is through what's called the Day of Read. It stands for Reflection, Education, Awareness, and Discernment. 
And that's when we really take a day where the entire university uh, and surrounding community is invited into campus for us to have a collective dialogue about, you know, what it is that we have learned so far and where are we going with that and really giving folks the opportunity to have input. So it's not a group, you know, sitting in a room somewhere. It's not the board of trustees alone. It's not Father Graham alone. It's not me as the chair of this initiative making the decisions about what forward looks like. Um, and I think that's important as we talk about reconciliation. Uh, we know, you know, that the, the current model, you know, really privileges silencing the majority to allow a minority to make decisions about the collective. Uh, and we are, you know, really trying to disrupt that practice and, you know, give voice, you know, to folks who don't have a quote-unquote political position or authority to make those decisions. Uh, I mean, you know, as we think about, you know, how we disrupt the current narrative. And so that's the bulk of what's going on. Um, you know, and again, there are more initiatives that are underway uh, and a lot of uh, uh, things that are constantly evolving, you know, as we learn more about who we are and who we want to be. Awesome. Awesome. Yeah, that was a, a lot. I thank you for sharing all of that. And as you said, there's even more. I wanted to make sure, what was the A in read? Awareness. 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 Okay, I, I wanted to get that. All right. And I just want, a couple of things I just wanted to respond to. The, um, the young women in Senegal, I did sit in on a good portion of their report back during the symposium, and it was very um, powerful to hear their um, transformation and the insights that they gained from making that trip to the motherland, going to, to Senegal, and that that presentation was, I think, one of the highlights, I would say, of the overall symposium, hearing the report back from the young people that went to Senegal. And then the other thing I wanted to mention was, that was one other thing. Oh, in Cobra. So while I was there, I um, connected with, um, and I know you remember, someone told someone, 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 so told someone, so, so I can't remember exactly how it happened. But anyway, we connected with the uh, local chapter of Incobra. Actually, there used to be a chapter in Incobra, and it kind of, I guess, went dormant. But there are some activists there on the ground now in Cincinnati who just recently uh, resubmitted paperwork to reactivate the Cincinnati chapter of Incobra. So we definitely want to make sure that, you know, the work going forward is also, you mentioned community, you know, is getting that the Incobra Cincinnati chapter is involved in that process if they're not already. Yeah. Absolutely. Yeah. So we're, we are right at the uh, halfway point of this show, so we usually take a break and do a uh, ID, and then we're going to have, um, we're going to uh, play a video clip about the Georgetown, uh, the, yeah, the Georgetown situation, uh, and then we're going to bring in Sister Rochelle Prater, who is going to reflect. She was one of the, um, she happens to live in Cincinnati, but she's a, one of the descendants of Georgetown, and we'll have her, we'll bring her in um, on, on the other side of the break. So Absolutely. Thanks for having me. And you can hang on, too, so we can, and you can chime in or have, give us some closing remarks at the end. Okay. 
The Black Talk Media Project would like to invite you to become a member of the BTR Community subscription-based social media platform. BTR Community is a platform that was set up for the listening audience of Black Talk Radio Network, the number one independent black radio network online. For just $24 per year, your subscription gives you access to an interactive space to share information with like-minded people with your privacy guaranteed. Your subscription will go a long way to help us maintain and improve our current media platforms. It will also help provide a budget so that we can begin the task of establishing localized media centers and radio stations across the United States. The best way to show your support and appreciation for what we do here at Black Talk Radio is to subscribe. Help us to help you be informed. Join btrcommunity.com today. All right, you've been listening to Make Black Talk Radio your choice for digital black radio. New black media for the new millennium. I am All right, here you've been listening to Conversation. Because 180 years ago, the Society of Jesus sold my family. So all of this could exist. Georgetown University's reckoning with owning slaves isn't new. The original Georgetown College operated plantations in Maryland. It was also massively in debt. To pay that debt, the university sold 272 slaves. At the time, the sale helped pay the school's debts. The administration has already apologized and given legacy admission to descendants of those slaves. Now, students are taking it one step further, to reparations. The conversation that we're having now about reparations is a natural outgrowth of students not only learning about Georgetown's history of slaveholding, but also being really challenged to think about what does it mean when institutions are able to continue and thrive at the expense of people and their communities. Marsha Chatlin works with GU students who wrote and proposed a new referendum that would establish a fund for descendants of those slaves. And it would cost every undergraduate student at Georgetown $27.20 a semester. I think it's the students holding up a mirror to the institution saying we are willing to make sacrifices we are willing to make choices what are you willing to do one of those students holding up that mirror also happens to be a descendant of one of georgetown university slaves my name is melisande short cologne growing up short cologne always knew most of her family's history in america i knew who i was i knew mary ellen queen april mahoney harriet queen Robert and Mary Mahoney, I knew those names. I knew that they were owned by an Irish Catholic family. So my very first grandmothers arrived here in colonial Maryland as indentured women. They were black women, they were free, they were indentured. After they worked out their term of indenture, my grandma's papers were destroyed and they were imprisoned. And when they came out of prison, they were slaves for life. A few years ago, Short Cologne got a message that went even further. Her ancestors were sold to keep the doors of then Georgetown College open. It was a validation of everything that I ever knew, but it was also a blow up of everything. 
that I ever knew. And in 2018, she enrolled as a legacy admission to Georgetown at 63 years old. Well, I feel like I have a bigger right to be here than anybody else. My family was the bedrock and the builders of all of this. And I felt like it was my responsibility to come here because I'm not here for the same thing 18 to 22 year olds are here for. But I'm here to bring something. So this fund will give students and descendants an opportunity to be leaders in and about a subject that leadership fails to present itself and come up with legitimate remedy. What you can do is make an investment in a more equitable and inclusive future for people who are not you. The conversation about reparations is obviously fraught and controversial, and not all of the student body is on board. Some students are against raising tuition for any reason, while others say the university should be making payments, not the students. Who was the beneficiaries of the sale of these people, the enslavement of these people? It's always been the students. This was all done for the students, and if you were a student in 1789, or you a student in 2019, it's still for you. I'm gonna pay my $27.20 a semester because I'm here, and I want that $27.20 a semester to be able to affect some change in some people's lives. That's a, a video clip from what's been going on at Georgetown University. And there was a panel during the symposium. But actually, before I mention that, I do wanted to say one of the um, highlights, again, for me of the symposium was when two of the college student activists from Georgetown University talked about their uh, process of organizing around this information and what they were finding out at Georgetown and the whole the idea of getting having a referendum, as well as they showed a, a video clip uh, where you could from other college students speaking about um, their thoughts and reflections on what was going on in Georgetown, and then they also called out the names of many of the uh, people who were enslaved our enslaved ancestors who were sold as a part of that 272. So we are very blessed and fortunate, and I was on a panel with Sister Rochelle Prater, who is a descendant herself, and contributed very powerfully to our presentation on reparations at the symposium. So she's been very patient, and so we want to bring you into this conversation as well. Greetings, Sister Rochelle. How are you? Hello, everyone. Greetings. Greetings. How are you doing? Thank you so much for having me. I appreciate it. It was wonderful meeting you as well. The time we had together was awesome. Yes, yes. So the video kind of gave some of the background of, you know, what, what, what's been happening at Georgetown. I don't know if you would like to just give a little your own uh, background or add to 
it or amplify maybe something that needs to be amplified from what people just heard okay. from the video. So, so what I like to do first is uh, just say that um, as a result of this news, uh, Miller's son, and we call a lovingly caller cousin Nelly, I discovered is uh, she and I are cousins. Um, and uh, I wholeheartedly uh, respect and love what she's doing and her energy and her presence there at Georgetown. Uh, I've had the privilege of visiting Georgetown now mm, probably about three times. Um, I had never known that there was a connection. But let me just step back a little bit and tell you a little bit about my connection to all of this. So I actually uh, was born in the 1960s, born and raised in Maryland, Louisiana, which is uh, a little town in northern Ippleville Parish with some other uh, communities, Rosedale, Gross State, as well as part of uh, Point Capi Parish with Lottie and Livonia, all those uh, African Americans who live there today, a lot of them, as I am speaking, do not realize that they are connected to this this particular um, news, this particular sale. Um, my, I am the great 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 granddaughter of Isaac Harkins, for whom the uh, the dorm, the building there at Georgetown was renamed back in uh, 2017. Um, I am the great granddaughter of Jackson Harkins, who uh, was three years old at the time of the sale. And then also uh, the great, great granddaughter of Julia Delphi um, West Butler and a butler. She was nine years old and she was actually so without her mother, her mother Bexie had actually ran away when one of the uh, Jesuit priests had uh, alerted the slaves that they were going to be sold. She actually was, I think, about 32 years old, and she left her kids, her four kids behind, and they were actually sold without her. Um, both of those uh my ancestors were sold by the Jesuits of Georgetown in the 1838 sale. Um, my issue when it comes to this particular sale is that, as we all know, this whole thing is dynamic. So it's literally changing every day. And so my yeah. position initially where it comes in with the sale was Georgetown University was a uh, the recipient up the re recipient of the sale, but the real beef is with the Jesuits, the Society of Jesus, if you will. And for me personally, it touched my 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 soul because I was raised Catholic in that little small town. Um, I was number nine of nine, and I always had this spiritual connection where something wasn't quite right, and it probably was because. The black sit on one side and the white sit on the other side. And for me, for me to be in an institution of faith-based, that bothered me a lot. And I think it, 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 it has 
for me, become one of my key um, core beliefs is that I have a problem with hypocrisy. So I'm real, real strong, heavy-handed, if you will, when it comes to um, authenticity and accountability. So that's where I come from. And so you, with the issue of the the what to do about this, I immediately sit down and I share some of these points when we were on the panel. Uh, do you want me to just go through these, or what do you want to? Well, let's, um, yeah, well, that, yeah, well, thank you first for that background is important. I think, uh, if I'm correct, Isaac uh, Hawkins is the person who's the first name on the bill of sale. That's correct. Right, that's one of the reasons they chose his name to rename the building in Georgetown. So also, let me just say this, you know, we, you and I have talked about this, you know, in preparation for this, is that the situation in Georgetown is that there are different descendant groups that have formed. Um, Sister Rochelle is a part of one group, but there are several different groups that have formed, and there are different conversations and different strategies around how to deal with Georgetown and how to deal with the Jesuit and Catholic faith um, uh, tradition in terms of how to address what needs to happen. So we want to get that out right now, so I don't forget to say that. Um, and even some of the uh, lawyers and activists within COBRA have actually been a part of the case as they are, are in the D.C. area. Uh, Sister uh, Aju Ayoturo has been working with this case as well. So we, so I'm saying that because we intend to, make, at a later show, to really um, maybe go deeper and unpack the whole Georgetown situation and bringing in different voices and different groups and different um, perspectives and lawyers. But right now, we really want to just focus in on Sister Rochelle, who made a presentation at the University of Southern Slavery. And now, I think, you know, part of that uh, presentation was for us to lift up some ideas and strategies in terms of how to address this information as we're uncovering this information around slavery and the connection to these institutions. Uh, institutions being not only the university but also the uh, Catholic Church, and so now I think would be a good you know time for you to you know share with us some of your reflections and and the group that you represent uh, working with how they are moving forward with this um, news that oh, it was really not news because what I understand in Georgetown there was always people that kind of knew about it. So really, what we want to say is that how this uh, information has been surfaced by um, professors and students and on campus and how this information has now become more public and, and brought into the public uh, sphere. Okay, okay mm -hmm. thank you. So first I want everybody to know and to understand that we are family members that have different perspectives and ideas about what needs to happen to make us whole. However, that doesn't mean that we don't love each other and embrace each other and and together we have went through the emotions of mourning this understanding what happened uh getting to know each other uh for those of us that don't know each didn't know each other from the get-go so i want to be clear about that the other point that i want to make is as i shared when we did the panel is that 
I am so incredibly blessed to be a part of a of this time to have been the descendant of an enslaved laborer that has the opportunity to think about what it's like if I knew who I was and what I would want, who what, what where I came from and what I would want to happen to make it to make it right on behalf of my ancestors. So that's where I want to make clear to everybody. It's, it's a real thing. It's not something I can imagine what it would be like. I know what it's like, okay? So when I first heard about all of this, I immediately sit down and got my notebook and wrote about things that, that I sit down and I, I, I literally cried and weeped about what it would be like with the names they had, Isaac and Patrick and Letty and 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 Betsy and and Jackson. What would Grandpa Jackson what would he have done for Rochelle as his little granddaughter if he had not been enslaved? What where would mm. I have been today? And what would he want to happen if he could say, Rochelle, tell them that this is what I want them to do for you because of what I did for them for free. So I came up with some things at that time and I, I really was touched with looking from the inside out and the inside out for me is as I look at my own people, my own cousins in my community, in my town, and even here in Cincinnati, there are opportunities where um, for one thing, we always have to act for everything. So we don't really have the resources, be it uh, uh, monetarily or or even ownership of of, of, of of processes and so forth, where we have the freedom to decide how we want to do things and where we want to do things. And by the way, let me be very clear. I am one of those people that am very much not interested in going to Georgetown. I went to Southern University in Baton Rouge. My daughter went to Fifth. My son went to FAMU, and my husband went to Cahoma Junior College. So I am 100 and 1,000% for the HBCU because HBCUs give us that thing that money can't buy, and that is self-esteem, encouragement, and community. So let me just start there. And that being said, I know that my grandpa Jackson would have been okay with reaching down in his pocket and writing a check and sending me to Southern or sending my daughter to Fifth or sending my son to FAMU. But what I'm left with with my daughter is that we, she's in a tremendous amount of educational debt just to better herself. And that's something that we should not have to do. So that's my number one thing. We should be free to be educated or trained or whatever without having to worry about, if you will, going in a poorhouse to do, number one. The other thing that I would like to see is, of course, I have a passion for uh, seeing people be the best, their best self. So I love uh, the concept of career development and also uh, being career and college ready. Even 
if it's not about college being entrepreneurship uh, ready, uh, as well as financial literacy, career aspiration, uh, financing and doing the college placement. And most of all, and everybody kind of clapped when I said this, I think it's important for us to have automatically passports and have the opportunity to travel outside of these USA, outside of this country. Because I think the biggest thing that we struggle is uh, psychologically and emotionally, uh, we all have been beat down with the trauma of having lived in this country, working as hard as we can every day and not feeling whole. We all go through that. So um, I think I also had mentioned that I would like to see, um, you know, uh, free or, or, or self-care and access to, to psychological and mental health services that we control, not other people where we have to sit across the desk and somebody say, let me send you to this Anglo-Saxon person or whatever versus us being able to hear like uh, Sister Karen shared about going abroad and getting that inner healing for ourselves. So those were some of the things that I had talked about uh, and discovering truth and embodying that truth and not being afraid to be, to honor our ancestors and feel one thing that has happened to me in my transformation, and it probably happened back then now that I look back at it, is that I have a keen connection with my ancestors on the other side. Um, I, I am not, you know, I know a lot of people in our community believe in religion and religion things and so forth, but I also know that there was a time when we had our own spirituality that we don't understand and we kind of, if you will, don't have the freedom to, uh, to go and explore. And so those are the biggest things is that I want the power and the freedom to access the things that I care about without conditions. So that's where I come from with all of this. Yes. And, um, you know, it's, it's so important that you, you did that. And I like how you actually talked about, you know, your process of doing that and thinking about what your grandparents or great-grandparents how they would be thinking in terms of what they would be asking for or what you know and that that was very beautiful you know one of the things that I think is important in the reparations movement that we haven't done a good enough job at which is actually detailing what reparations would look like we've been we've raised the word reparations up and we've done a good job now at getting people talking about reparations, city government, college institutions, presidential candidates. However, we still have a much more work to do in terms of specifically spelling those things out. As you have done, we need to have more um, meetings and gatherings and town hall meetings and organizations to come together and actually detail that. So appreciate that. And even in the um, panel that we shared, uh, because my time kind of got short, I spent a lot of time. The panel was called 40 Acres and a Myth, and so I wanted to really spend some time with the whole history of 40 Acres. But also I had some some 
uh, uh, plans that you know, I wanted to suggest as well in terms of what some of the colleges can be doing around the issue of reparations very specifically. So what I would like to do at this time is just we kind of winding down is if you have some uh, closing remarks and if uh, Sister Rochelle in terms of, you know, what do you think is important in terms of moving forward with this uh, campaign now that we have this information. I know that uh, you shared with me, and I'm not sure you said some of it you can talk about, some of it you can't talk about, but you all are having some high-level negotiations, so I'll say it like that, and you can share how much of, of it that you are able to or not. And well, also uh, how people can contact your organization if they want to get um, further, find out further, um, get further involved or connected to you. Okay, so one of the things that I I decided because of my who I am and what I believe, and I I, I do want to say again, getting back to the idea of reparations and the terms and, and who I chose to align myself with because of who I am. Um, when this went down, I think this is an important point that I forgot to mention, is that I shared with everybody, as you recall, is that I thought about monetarily, what is it that somebody could give me to say, okay, I'm sorry, here you go, is a blank check. What can I give you? And I really, really, and I'm emotional about it right now because for me, in this country, if somebody, there is not a check that you can write for me, for my family, because for me, it feels like selling them again. That's what it felt like. That's why I could, that's why I could make a list of things that that don't necessarily some of them are monetarily they require I understand that you got to have funds to get things done but at the end of the day there is no check that you can give me or write for me so that I get the feeling because of the way things are that people say okay we settled this and here's the conditions don't you ever bring up Jackson again I'm going to write this check this the end of it. Don't ever bring up Jackson. So one of the things that I align myself with is the GU272 Association, which is a membership association. We can be reached at GU2, GU272.net is our website. But we also, and it's public knowledge, that we have a foundation in the works, the GU272 Foundation which is a foundation uh, where we are requesting the development of a foundation with a uh, endowment of of two big I mean of two big maybe it should of a billion dollars in perpetuity for two hundred years, and I think that's unique in that that gives us the opportunity to have a resource where we have. Uh, uh, funds, if you will, and we get to sit at the table and decide what it is we want to do and how we want to do it. So that's how I'm going to end this piece. <laughs> All right. Thank you. Um, and, you know, you're right. I think that 
when we speak about reparations, and I remember you mentioned it being close to your ancestors, you know, one of the things in, in that we say in the African tradition and African value system is we have a collective value system. And I think that's a lot of what you were saying is that right. you were speaking that truth is that, you know, when you talk about paying off college student debt, that's still funds, right? That's still economic. When you talk about job training, that's still funds needed to, to pay pay a counselor to teach young people about going into different careers or whatever. So all of it, you know, you know, money is a component. However, the way the things that you were talking about are things that are about the collective. And that's how that's how we tend to operate from an African centered worldview is that we believe in looking at the collective as opposed to looking at the individual. And even the billion dollar uh, foundation, again, is collective because you're looking at looking at the how you use that collectively with groups of people and organizations to to elevate and improve on the community, the people of African descent. So, yeah, okay, so I appreciate. Me, okay, one more ahead. thing, because I want to make it clear, because you said yeah. it collectively. This foundation is not for the descendants of the GU272. This foundation is for all the descendants collectively. That's what this is about. It's not just for us. So I'm glad you reminded me to be clear for people out there that this is not for us. This is for us. Okay? Yes, yes, so thank you for us. reminding me. I, I forgot that little piece. Sure. All right. Okay. And Dr. Kyra Shahid, are you still on the line with us? Are you still? Wow, wow. I am on the line and very much so in And as an HBCU grad, myself uh, and my co-planner for uh, the Fall Symposium is an HBCU grad as well, um, could not be more thankful for the approach uh, that has been shared and for the ideas and for this affirmation that this work is not an individual endeavor. You know, this is about moving forward a, a collective of individuals who are present and past. Um, you know, we do this work for with and with regard to our ancestors and our children. Mm -hmm. um, and so it's, it's a really powerful, you know, way to think about what it means to repair. We are restoring the breach, you know, repairing a lot of wasted places. And so much of that, uh, I think, is it's healing in itself, you know, us being able to know who we are, um, and to be able to express that knowing and live in that knowing more abundantly um, is the way our creator intended for us to walk this earth. And so I'm, you know, excited and affirmed about what's to come. All right. I was going to ask you for a closing remark, but I think you just gave it. I do. I'm glad you did, <laughs> did. bring up uh, Dr. Uh, Holly McGee again, because I think that, um, you know, I, I've been focusing a lot of attention on you, but I know that you all work collectively, collaboratively on this. And so yeah. we definitely want to lift her up as, as your comrade, a confidant partner uh, yeah. in in making this uh, uh, supposedly come off. And then, you know, and then I probably need to bring her on at another point because I know the University of Cincinnati, they have this, its own story to tell Absolutely. what's been happening on that campus, uh, the, historic, the history uh, as well as current. 
issues that have been uh, happening on their campus and then what's been happening in the greater Cincinnati area. So if you would like to um, give out your contact information in case, you know, those who want to reach you directly to find out more about what's going on in Xavier and the work that you do. Um, Absolutely. So the best way to reach me uh, pertaining to this work is going to be straight through our stained glass website, which is stained glass at xavier.edu. That's the quickest way to get to me with everything else that's going on. Um, That comes, you know, straight, straight through. Say two more Uh, times and slowly. Yep. So that's stained glass at xavier.edu. Stained stained glass. E-D. Yep, stained with the okay. E-D. Yep, stained okay. glass at xavier.edu. Very good, very good. Well, let me thank both of you all, Dr. Kyra, Sister Rochelle. I uh, feel like, well, I'm sister because if, well, you said, okay, I'm going to say sister. <laughs> I'm going to say you feel more like an auntie, but I'm going to say sister auntie. Um, Rochelle, thank you for your contribution to conversation reparations. Thank you also, Dr. Kyra uh, Shahid, and we're going to thank um, Dr. Holly McGee as well, <laughs> and uh, your your uh, team. And we want to recognize our, our engineer uh, Scotty Reed for uh, Black Talk Radio Network, who's been engineering and um, making this all happen for us. And I just have to talk and and get you all on uh, board and interview you and, and let you talk. But he's the one that, that makes this all happen also, so thank you. And you've been listening to Conversation Reparations, Conversation Reparations, Conversation Reparations radio show brought to you by Encobra, the National Coalition of Blacks for Reparations in America, your host, Brother Jumoke Ife Tayo, the Southeast Regional Representative of Encobra, also coordinator of the ISHA committee and the male co-chair of the Atlanta chapter of Incopra. We thank you. Continue to support this work.